Hello, everybody, and welcome. You're listening to episode 15 of SFF Addicts, a bi-weekly panel podcast featuring writers from fanfiaddict.com, authors, publishing professionals, bloggers, and more, where we come together to chat about science fiction and fantasy, as well as the occasional jaunt into the wider SFF industry. I'm your host, Adrian M. Gibson, and this week we're taking a stroll around town as I chat about cities as characters with authors Fonda Lee, Gareth Hanrahan, J.D. Jang, and Peter Hartog. Now, as someone who grew up as a bit of a rural country boy, I love cities, and all of us had a great time sharing our experiences of where we've lived and visited, as well as how these four authors approach the distinct city settings and their works. After all, a good setting is the basis for good characters and a good story, and these authors have created some truly awesome playgrounds for their stories to unfold in. Now, before we jump into the panel, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the amazing folks at The Broken Binding. They live to serve all of your fantasy and sci-fi needs with signed books, reprints, and the most amazing gift wrapping you could ever ask for. Make sure to visit them at thebrokenbinding.co.uk and use the promo code FANFI, F-A-N-F-I, for 5% off your next order. All right, now on to the panel. Here we go. Welcome, everybody, to episode 15 of the podcast for another author panel. And as a city lover, this is a topic that I've been so excited to do ever since I started the podcast uh, last year. We're going to be talking about cities as characters. I have a fantastic group of panelists joining me today, all making first appearances. And together, we're going to delve deeper into the heart of the urban sprawl. So first up is Fonda Lee. She's the world fantasy and three-time Aurora Warding author of The Greenbone Saga including Jade City, Jade War, and Jade Legacy, which just came out uh, back in November, December, as well as Zero Boxer and the Exo series. So good to see you, Fonda. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Adrian. Pleasure. Very good to see you again. And next up is Gareth Hanrahan. He's a writer and game designer, best known for his Black Iron Legacy series, including The Gutter Prayer, The Shadow Saint, and The Broken God. Gareth has also published a ton of role-playing games and supplements, including the award-winning The Laundry File, uh, The Laundry Files RPG, Adventures in Middle Earth, and the Dracula Dossier. So welcome to the show, Gareth. Happy to be here. I'm semi-awake, so it's always a plus. <laughs> Post-birthday party blues. It's okay, buddy. Post-birthday party crush, indeed. <laughs> and also joining us is JD Jang. She's the author of Monkey Around, her debut novel. Uh, so first of all, I want to congratulate you on that. And she is also a cultural worker and activist and co-founded Hyphen Magazine, uh, the Aperture Festival in San Francisco, and the disability justice organization Bad Crip. So happy to have you here, JD. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And last up, my good friend, my rock, Peter Hartog. He is the author of Bloodlines and Pieces of Eight, books one and two in his Guardians of the, um, uh, Guardian of the Empire City series, and he's currently hard at work on book number three. So I'm so glad to finally have you on the show, my friend. How are you doing? 
I'm fantastic. Just being with these wonderful authors and hanging out with you. This is, I'm just so excited. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, buddy. It's a pleasure. It's about time, right? Yeah. Uh, nah, you, you don't, <laughs> the show is doing really well. And then you brought me on, but Hey, that's okay. We're tanking from here. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Oh man. Uh, so I really love cities as a setting, as a place to visit in real life. But to start off the discussion, I want to know what appeals to each of you about cities. So we'll kick it off with you, Fonda. Well, I have always loved cities as a setting. I think um, one of the things that appeals to me most about them is that they are the greatest concentration of humanity in terms of the cross-section of people that you can encounter in cities. I mean, they really are this... Um, the stew of just every socioeconomic demographic, different types of people, different races you have. Um, they are, they're often a focal point for migration and immigrants coming into a new land. Um, and so you, you really uh, do get like this enormous diversity of types of people and their backgrounds and um, their their social status and occupation and all that, like in one concentrated mm -hmm. place. And so for a fictional city, if you want to tell a story in which you are highlighting um, tensions in society and interactions between different um, elements of the population, cities are this fantastic place to do that because you really do get like the absolute richest you know, billionaire types who are walking by homeless people, right? So you get um, so many potential friction points, and yet all these different elements are are coexisting. Um, and you can, there's a lot of just narrative potential to mine with mm. that setting. Yeah, I agree. And Peter, what about you? What uh, what appeals to you about cities? It's, it, you know, it's the old expression, the melting pot in New York City, any other city, just like Fonda was saying, it's um, a, a confluence of energy, uh, the cultures, the religions, the ethnicities, the, the all of those bits and pieces that form a very chaotic yet surprisingly cohesive whole. People migrate towards cities, whether it's because they're looking to discover their dreams or that's where their families have been for generations. And whether you're established or whether you're a newcomer, the possibility, the optimism, the opportunity, uh, that's some of the characteristics that I find fascinating about cities. The revolution and evolution of technology, the, and yet sometimes underneath all that, the dark side of humanity the good and the bad that is rife with potentials for uh, potential for storytelling. Yeah. It's like humanity's full spectrum of capability all smashed into this very concentrated core. Um, JD, what about you? What's your take on cities and what appeals to you? <laughs> um, I think, I think it comes down to cities are depending on what metaphor you like there machines or their organisms and um, they function in particular ways they're not just a collection a large collection of people um 
they, although if you collect a large enough number of people and into one place for long enough, they will eventually organize into a city. But um, cities function in particular ways that, that you know, smaller towns um, and villages and, and exurban places don't function. And um, it, they have uh, different centers of different kinds of activities. They have, um, uh, you know, different loci. Um, different places of concentration, they have different layers. Um, There's so many different functions that happen within a city. And, um, and it all kind of fits together in various ways. And, and every city, the ways that it fits together are, are different. Um, and uh, I find myself uh, a little bit incoherent about this, uh, because it's so vast. I, I've, um, I've sort of been studying urbanism as an amateur for um, for many years uh, because there are just so many ways of looking at a city and, and sort of peeling away the layers of the onion and, and understanding how it works. Um, but I'll, I'll stop there because <laughs> I, I don't think I quite encapsulated what it is that I find fa um, fabulous about cities, but hopefully that'll come out later. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into it. You brought up an interesting point. I mean, first of all, you just by everything that you said conveyed the fact that you are fascinated by cities. There's something unique about it to the point where you dub yourself an amateur urbanist. Um, and I, I find that absolutely amazing because we as humans tend to gravitate towards our interests and, and a lot of the time we become really obsessive about it. And if, you, if you're fascinated by cities so much that you write about them, I think the research and, and everything that you dig up on cities that actually exist in our own world, that just comes naturally, you know, and I can hear the passion in your voice. So um, I, I really appreciate that. And I, uh, I connect with you on, on that level. Um, Gareth, we'll get your take on what uh, appeals to you about cities. And then I want to dig into what, uh, what can define the character of a city and what can make a city so special. So Gareth, if you want to, if you want to take off on on both of those topics, in terms of like what I like about cities, what really appeals is sort of the messiness of them. That you can like you know walk down the street, turn a corner, and have a totally different plot element. Mm. Uh, wherever you go, there's like you know all sorts of hidden nooks and crannies and different factions and groups, and it all overlaps so nicely. So that you've got just huge opportunities for making stuff up, and for if you're ever sort of stuck, you can bring something new in. Um, it's a great environment for messy storytelling. Um, what was the next question again? <laughs> this is the uh, birthday party we're in. <laughs> it's all good. What, what uh, for you can, I mean, because JD brought up every city is so unique that you're peeling back the layers, but this onion is different from that onion. The city is different from that city. But what for you can um, impact what the character of a city is like or or what makes a particular city so special? I think every city is going to have like certain commonalities in terms of like, you know, different neighbors and districts that, like, you know, um, in a fantasy book, uh, or series, like, every city is going to be like a docks or as we like a rich area, poor area. It's the sort of the quirks that make each, that makes this city unique that like, you know, the particular industries, particular, like sort of folds of its history. Um, and it, it all sort of builds up. Like, you know, no city has like sort of one defining element. It's always sort of like you know, the, the sort of overlap of three or four or five different things that 
uh, make it different and unique to, to multiple points, or points of friction. Yeah, like the melting pot is so. It's once everything is in that pot, it's sometimes difficult to define the individual ingredients because the flavor of of that of that pot is is unique because of all the different elements that come together come together and combine and inter interweave in such a way that the unique end result uh is 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 the thing that appeals to people but obviously for every individual person you know as we were saying before uh, we started recording toronto's different for me as it is for fonda but that's because my my melting pot version of of toronto tastes different than than fonda's um but fonda do you want to get it on this and and yeah and sort of uh, i mean i elaborate think that on... um yeah go ahead yeah, I, I think you, you, so you asked what are some things that can really define a city and give it its unique characteristics. And mm-hmm. um, I think first and foremost, geography and climate are really, really um, crucial to the formation of a city and what its character is. Um, because uh, if you think about where any city is formed, why did people decide to settle there? Why did they decide that, you know, this place was the place where they were, they were going to um, set a permanent residence. And it's often, you know, maybe it's at the junction of two rivers. Um, maybe it's because of a, of a, um, a sheltered Harbor, uh, that was uh, good for trade. Maybe it was a defensible area, um, from, from enemies. So there's so many reasons why a city is, and sometimes they're very, they're political, right? Like the, the an emperor decided to move the capital here. So there's, um, all, there are reasons, geographic, um, and climate-related reasons why people decide to settle in place, and that really um, becomes part of that city's DNA. So, for example, um, I lived in Toronto for many years, and I was I was working downtown, and my memories of Toronto involve a lot of time navigating the subway and the underground mall when it was freezing cold and the city was covered in <laughs> snow and ice. And yeah. that is a very different experience and a character to that city than, say, Los Angeles, um, which is this huge, sprawling, sun-drenched, you know, place filled with traffic that um, would be, I mean, the, to, if that place was covered in snow, it would be impossible, to, massively um, costly to try and maintain all of those those freeways in a, in a blizzard. Um, and then, you know, I, I now live in the Pacific Northwest, and I don't think it's, I think there's something to be said um, for the climate of this this city contributing to me becoming a writer and the amount of you know rainy days that I spend indoors making up other worlds. So um, you know there's there there's a, a large part of that city's character that that is very much defined by its physicality. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Overcast Oregon, for urging Fonda to write. <laughs> Uh, Peter, it's what's true. There's take? something in the water. We so, have like <laughs> you, you can't throw a rock without hitting a writer around here. I think. <laughs> the the dreary days make people uh, insular and creative. <laughs> and uh, Peter, what about you? What's your take on all this? I'm basically moving to the Pacific Northwest in Oregon because if it's in the water, then I need to drink as much of it as possible to uh, <laughs> to, to just get that creativity going. But um, you know, the essence of a city is its bones. Um, the character that's developed by the people that dwell there from the beginning all the way up to wherever it is now. 
And I, I have, I've lived in the Northeast. I'm originally from Massachusetts. Um, so Boston is, is home for me. And then I moved down to Georgia, which is the deep South. And so I have Atlanta, which is considered a, a Northern city in the deep South. And, you know, it, some of it has to do with just the availability of the land of how much can you actually build how you know whether it's a sprawl versus a very uh, a collection on top of a fen say like in the case of parts of boston or you know reclamation of land from water and so those bones which uh, are the the ultimate foundation for that city infused with the character of the people that started there and and what you know for good or for bad whether you're you know when, what, how influenced it was by the reasons why the people were there and what they were trying to do and then what has come since then. So, you know, it, it, cities are fascinating and have always been fascinating to me because I grew up in a small town, uh, Ashland, Massachusetts, got to represent, uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, I've looked at cities, I've lived in Pittsburgh, I've lived in around Atlanta and, and Boston, and I've visited New York and San Francisco, LA and whatever for business. They're all different. They're all unique from the architecture, the, the food, the, the smells, the sight, the way, the, how strong the sun is like in Los Angeles uh, versus kind of the gloom in New England uh, or down in the South, the oppressive heat. and those parts lend themselves additionally to the character of the city. You think Atlanta, you think hot. You think of uh, LA, you think sprawl. You think New York, you think skyscrapers and a wealth of people. And Pittsburgh, you think bridges. Uh, you may not think that, but that is actually what you think. Uh, <laughs> confluence of rivers. So that is, that is what you think. You have no choice. I have, yes, you have no choice. <laughs> I have said so, therefore it is true. Now I have no idea what I'm talking about, but the but that's the, all of those bits and pieces. Like I said earlier, they define uh, parts of uh, of the city and the dark places, the around the corners. Like Gareth was saying, you turn the corner and poof, messy story, which I think is a brilliant way of looking at it. Uh, and yeah. it's true; you just don't know what you're going to get. It's like uh, the city itself is an endless stream of writing prompts. You turn a corner, you never know what's going to happen. Shit gets messy. Things go well, things go bad. You never know. Uh, JD, what about you? Uh, for you, what, what are some aspects of, of cities that, that can define its character? Um, well, I, I won't, I won't, uh, I won't even jump off what has already been said because it was said thoroughly. Um, I think um, industry is a really important one um, and, and not just the kind of industry because that, as, as Fonda pointed out, was determined by, um, uh, by geography to a great extent, but how industry moves through a city, like for example, San Francisco, San Francisco uh, was founded as a boom town and there's something about San Francisco that has kept it a boom town. And um, every generation, there is a new boom with a new industry that comes in, floods the city uh, like a tide, and then and then like a tide goes back out. Um, and then and then a bunch of people leave the city, and then another industry comes in and floods the city, and like a tide, it comes back out. And San Francisco's character was has been determined 
by these uh, these boom and bust cycles. And you don't see that in other cities. Other cities are much more stable than San Francisco. Um, and so the, the this kind of instability um, has has built the character, you know, the, the um, population instability, the industrial instability, the financial instability has built the character of the city. And um, other cities who have a, a certain kind of state stability, um, stability isn't necessarily stayed, but um, the, the stability can cause a staidness or a staleness, or the stability can cause an incredible growth or flowering. Um, it, it really depends. So um, uh, like like I said, all of these things are interlocked. It's, it's really hard to pick these things apart. Um, another thing is um, uh, certain traditions grow up and the moment people become conscious of them and start holding onto them and, and upholding them, um, the traditions of a city become really important to its character. Um, and, and again, um, you, you know, San Francisco is always going to be my example because this is the city I've lived in the longest. But um, we have a tradition of um, political protest. And um, and so this city, you know, the, the entire world looks on us as um, a kind of bubble of liberalism. Um, I, I don't know how actually true that is. Um, we're, we're not always as, as liberal or left as, as people think we are, but um, we definitely do have a tradition of a certain kind of activism, a certain kind of, um, uh, you know, being on the bleeding edge of um, political thought and political action um, in, uh, in kind of civic um, in civic action in particular. And um, you know what, I, I, I'm not even gonna go on. There are just, there's so many um, other ways that's, um, so many other aspects of cities that make them particular. And um, and uh, if I continue talking, I'm just gonna take up the whole time, so I'll stop. <laughs> no, it's okay, Jade. You made a couple of points that really uh, stand, stand out to me and everyone kind of like, I'm gonna bring this all together and sort of lead it into the next question. Uh, I want to know if you have a particular example of a city that stands out and JD, you, you spoke so um, intensely about San Francisco and what it, what it goes through with these boom and bust cycles. And for me living in, in Quito in Ecuador, it's just this very strange amalgamation of of history and culture uh, as a part of the Inca Empire, and then as it progressed through the the Spanish conquistadors and all that, and now that it's kind of taken on uh, more modernist tones, and how all of that intermingles in in very strange ways. Um, Quito doesn't necessarily have like a strong uh, industry the way that some somewhere like San Francisco does with all its ebbs and flows, but uh, culturally, there's still so much that's really emblematic about the city. There's, there's like San Francisco, a history of uh, protest and, and um, sort of like public civic uh, demonstrations of especially indigenous versus, uh, I guess you could call it, uh, institutional forces. So a lot of times... The indigenous people who are usually the ones who are outside of the city in the farms and, and providing a lot of the sustenance for the people who are living in the city, they get treated like shit. And, and when things go awry from a government perspective, it is South America. And so there are a ton of ebbs and flows in terms of government uh, stability um, as opposed to uh, industry. The indigenous people 
they take to the streets and a lot of the times they actually march from their small towns to Quito in order to display their disagreement with uh with the government and their um mistreatment of of the indigenous population so it's like all these different things coming together it's like the city as a focal point of culture and history uh government and politics um industry in the sense that these are these are farmers who are coming here to voice their opinions against the government all these different things coming together in in such fascinating ways and Fonda, you brought up geography quito to me is so distinct because it runs through like a narrow channel of a valley in between these two uh massive rises of andean mountains and so the urban sprawl of this city is literally just smeared straight down from top to bottom. And there's a little bit of a, sort of like a pockets of, of population on the outskirts. But if you look on a map, it's just, I mean, <laughs> uh, I guess I could make a Robert Jordan reference. It's like Tarvalon and it's shaped like a vagina. <laughs> but that's just a matter of geography playing into it. It's like this is a this is a valley in between a ton of active volcanoes and and the the city has just spread up and down based on on its uh, geographical uh, situation. So so many things that make the city really unique and and I think more than other than Berlin, where I lived for three years, um, you know, so much, so much uh, combining of different unique aspects of a country and a people and different groups coming together with Spanish influence, Inca influence, modern influence, a lot of it coming from the United States and all of it just smashing together in this chaos of a city. And I absolutely love it. Uh, so I'll toss this over to Fonda. If you have an example of a city that you really connected with you, you really Gosh, love um, and why? You know, I don't know if I can answer the question is like, what's a city that is really connected with me and that I love? Because I've found something to appreciate about every one of the cities that I've lived in. Um, including Toronto, which I know is not your favorite city, <laughs> but I, I spent, I've spent the longest amount of time I've lived in the, in Toronto, Calgary Bay area. And then I, I live now in, in Portland, Oregon, but because I've lived the longest here in, here in, um, Portland, I, um, will answer your question in sort of the, in terms of like what, um, has been, uh, really sort of, um, distinctive or interesting about the place that I live in now. And, um, and it ties into sort of this, this into the storytelling aspect, because I think, um, there are cities that stand out for sort of the, the narrative that they build up around themselves, right? Like what do people who live there, um, tell themselves, uh, about their city? And, um, and this, uh, I think is for me, it has been the strongest with living here in, in Portland because Portland is a city that is very aggressively, almost self-consciously quirky and counterculture. I mean, we have bumper stickers that say like, keep Portland weird. Right. And, um, <laughs> the narrative that is built up around Portland, which is not a big city, uh, is such that depending on who I talk to, if I say something like, oh, I live in Portland, Oregon. I may get a response like, oh, wow, I, I love Portland. And 
because there's this, they're thinking like, oh, like food trucks and we're all just like quirky hipsters wearing Birkenstocks, Birkenstocks and like brewing kombucha and like shopping at the farmer's market. <laughs> or I'll get a response like, oh goodness, like, because they'll, they'll, yeah. <laughs> they'll be thinking like riots and like burning trash cans and like the city just being filled with political protests, you know, day and night and the whole city is burning, right? Because that was the narrative that was around Portland for a good chunk of, you know, the last few years. So um, that is interesting in and of itself, but yet uh, there's the question of to what extent is that narrative um, accurate or or does it portray sort of the, the daily experience of the people who live there. Um, and like, for me, it is always interesting to see the reactions of people, uh, to, you know, the idea of Portland when I live sort of in a Western, um, burb area of Portland that's filled with tech companies and like people who go, you know, drive their kids to school and go about their daily lives. And so at neither of those extremes of this just being anarchy or like, you know, happy communist, you know, people growing food in their backyard and hand knitting, like hand making handicrafts, <laughs> like neither of those is, is accurate. Um, and I, I think that can be applied to a lot of cities that have this character that, of that has kind of grown, um, up out of, out of sort of a shared mythos, right? Like you think of New York, which has this mythos of being Know, the land of opportunity and where like all immigrants came to, but like, is that really real now? Like, is, is it the land of opportunity for a lot of the people there? And what does that, does that drive with their, their day-to-day -day experience? Um, so, uh, so yeah, that, I, I think that, that, that's an interesting thing to think about is that, um, you know, what, uh, what does a city tell itself that it is and, and, how does that influence how other people see that city if they haven't mm. lived in it for themselves? Yeah, I like that notion, the sense of uh, a lived narrative versus a more shared popular, popular narrative of, of what a city. And, you know, things like movies, I think, especially in the United States, movies kind of fuck with people's uh, idea of what a city actually is. And then you go and visit it and you realize, oh, yeah, this is not as glamorous or or characteristic as i imagined it based on the movies or tv shows that i've seen right etc and i mean to watch american movies you would think that only the only things that happen in the u.s happen in like the u.s or los angeles i mean like new york or los angeles right like those are exactly. like the main cities where any story takes place um and that also speaks to where are kind of concentrations of industry and power and like i'm i'm uh, as an author uh, so much of the perspective of the publishing industry is based in New York. And yeah. for the entertainment industry, so much of that perspective is based in Los Angeles. Yeah. And so it's skewed right off the bat. It's like, this is the, this is the collective narrative that, that Los Angeles is speaking, but it's also portraying places beyond Los Angeles, you know, or in the case of books, it's like the publishing industry is, is projecting many, many narratives about many places, but all within the central locus of, of publishing power, uh, within Manhattan and, and what have you. Yeah. Uh, Gareth, we'll get, uh, your take on a city that a real life city that you have visited or lived in and, and you've really connected with. Yeah. I mean, the only place I really live for time, 
has been like here here in Cork in Ireland where I um where I was born and I've lived for like ninety five percent of my life. Taking a place that visited and how how they interact. It's interesting you know, that that how you're used to a city will sort of so much change your, your impressions of it. Like I lived in Oslo for a couple of months working on a computer game. And all my solutions there are very sort of cold. Well, obviously, Norway cold, but the city, because I was like, you know, they're doing a job and didn't have that much uh, in the way of like, you know, socialization or anything. Friends, they're on my own. Um, that Oslo, to me, still, it's very sort of like, you know, unfriendly, not unfriendly, but like, sort of like, you know, unwelcoming and hard to know place. Whereas I was in Wellington, New Zealand for like three or four days, maybe. But because I was staying with friends and they showed me around, showed me all the sort of the local bits and like, you know, you, you know, this little side street, little books are there. In my head, it is this incredibly welcoming, quirky, lived in city where I would like, you know, move to in a heartbeat. Um, and so also like when writing, the, 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 you, have like, you, know, you have two characters walking the same street in the same city and their personality and their perceptions of the city would colour so much of the narrative that you would always see like two different cities. Mm-hmm. That's something that we will get into sort of how uh, multiple POVs can, can allow you to portray different levels, different strata of, of a city and, and give you sort of, different perspectives such that it fleshes out the city a little bit more piece by piece. Um, but first, uh, JD, we'll get your take on, on a city that it doesn't have to be San Francisco that you visited or lived in, uh, that you really connected with. I'm not San Francisco. Um, uh, like you, Adrian, <laughs> I lived in Berlin, um, for five years during nice. my twenties. And, um, it wasn't just during my twenties, which are the, you know, the opening out years. It was, um, it was also during um, the the period immediately after reunification in the 90s. So um, I was experiencing this this opening out, and Berlin was experiencing this opening out, and it was an amazing time to be there. And um, that was what living in Berlin was what got me fascinated with urbanism because um, the whole time I was living there, Berlin was was a huge construction site. Um, the, 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 the face of the city, the, the infrastructure, um, the structures, everything was changing day by day. Um, and I would, I would walk outside my door and, and, you know, walk a few blocks or take a train and, um, and I'd find like literally the streets reforming around me and the buildings reforming around me. It was, it was being in the middle of like a, this tremendous transformation. When I visit Berlin now, I don't recognize huge chunks of the city. Um, but um, the, the one thing that the one thing that really, really got me was um, uh, the, well, the, 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 the reason I fell in love with it was um, I was, I was reading my guidebook and it said, go to Potsdamer Platz, which is the center of the city. So I took the, the underground there and I came up from underground up um, a, a staircase into this ginormous empty lot. It was just a complete hole right in the middle of one of Europe's major cities. And I was like, this is fucked. I love it. You know, it's amazing. Yeah. And um, 
And of course, now if you go to Potsdamer Platz, it's the most built-up area of the city, and it's completely new, and it's just high rises and shiny it, glass. It's and steel. It's steel, steel and glass everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when I when I first appeared in Potsdamer Platz, it was the the world's biggest empty lot, right smack in the middle of the city, and. Um, and as I lived there, I, I watched the traffic around Potsdamer Platz change and shift like um, like a river system that that's um, that's had a um, a big rock or like a, a volcanic extrusion just kind of extruded up into it, and everything just kind of shifts around it. There's so many geological um, metaphors for geography, uh, especially in a place like Berlin. But that was the first thing. The second thing was. Um, Finding your way around Berlin in the 90s was a nightmare because they kept changing the street names. And it wasn't like in the United States where they only changed the names of major streets because they're hugely symbolic and the major streets are hugely symbolic. So you got to make sure like a major street isn't like in like in San Francisco, a major street isn't named Army. You want to name it Cesar Chavez um, or rename it Cesar Chavez um, in Berlin. Every street, like the, there, there's no Elm Street or, or, or Birch Street or anything like that. There is, like you know, there's streets named after poets, there's streets named after politicians, there's streets named after. I mean, just like every, I lived on a street, uh, like a two-block-long street that was named after a Polish poet, and um, and so all of those had to be changed. And they, and this was, when I was there in the '90s, this was the fifth wave of um, massive street renamings in the 20th century. Um, because every time there's a regime change, like a major regime change in Berlin, they have to change a larger and larger swath of street names. So um, the maps that everybody used to get around Berlin um, had a little yellow booklet in the front, um, which just listed the street renamings, and you had to get a new map every year because they would rename more and more and more streets. And it was like hundreds and hundreds of streets being renamed. And there's there were so many, and as I more than more I got into this and started talking to taxi drivers about it, there, there are a million stories about streets being renamed. One of the taxi drivers' favorites is there was a little old lady who was infamous among taxi drivers who would get into a cab and say, take me to Adolf Hitler Platz. And none of the cab drivers knew where Adolf Hitler Platz was because it was only called Adolf Hitler Platz for twelve years, and uh, and then yeah. very quickly it was like the first thing that was renamed. So um, so they would have to call the dispatch, and the dispatch would be like, "Yeah, we know this woman. Um, it's it's Tero Hoisplatz. but um, she would do it just to fuck with the cab drivers. Um, so this wow. this was what got me into Berlin. Um, the, these layers of history, like just walking down the street, you know, the, the geographical uh, and and geological layers of history that you could see in the buildings around you. You know, somebody would um, excavate a building that was had been partially bombed out and had never been. Re, you know, renovated, and um, and you could just literally see layers of like brick and stone going back two hundred, three hundred, four hundred years in the um, the foundations of the buildings, and um, and then you can look at this at the at a map of the city, and you can see where the old walls of the city were in the medieval city and where the old walls of the city in the Renaissance city were, yeah, and yeah. where the city gates were, and all of this stuff. So um, yeah. More layers. Damn, you, JD, I'm like, you're bringing back so many memories for me. I love this. You encapsulated Berlin. If you really connect with that city, you encapsulated it with 
this is really fucked up, but I love it. Like if you love Berlin, it's that kind of mentality. Like this place is a disaster, but it's so cool. And I think that's one of the best examples. You know, Quito has some elements of it too, but you know, going back to geological references, this is Berlin is one of those cities that has such clear stratification of its uh history visible, like really, really visible. I remember when I was living there, there's a there's a a big hill to the to the to the west of Berlin uh and it's surrounded by a forest and it's called Grunewald. Um and on top of this hill is is uh it was a Soviet uh or not sorry not a Soviet it was a, a uh, an allied radar station sort of like communication station built onto the top of this hill. It's abandoned now but they've sort of reclaimed it and turned it into like an art gallery slash art space. But the, but the hill itself, I didn't realize it, but the hill itself did not exist until after World War II. And they took tons and tons of rubble from Berlin and piled it and then planted trees on top of it. And now it just seems like a hill, even though it's literally built on the rubble of a broken city that was devastated during World War II. So it's just these, the geography itself is a shapeshifter based on the history and the devastation that the city under underwent, you know? And then like JD, she walked into Potsdamer Platz and it's just like an empty lot. And you're like, this is the most ghetto European capital in existence, but it's so emblematic. And so, um, it's so strong willed and it's, it's, uh, will to live and persist and, and shift its shape into something, into something new. This is really cool. Uh, Peter, we'll, uh, we'll finish off that, that notion with you. If there's a city, I know Berlin is like so, so crazy. I could talk for hours about that city, but uh, what's a city that for you, you really connected with and, and why? I would love to visit Berlin. I've, I've only been to Europe once, but uh, I, I'm going to be a homer uh, for a second, but then I'll, I'll, I'll shift. Um, Boston is... A wonderful city. I'm a very visceral, uh, experiential person. When I go somewhere, I'm breathing in the air. I'm looking around. I'm feeling, you know, is it cold? Is it hot? Is it whatever? And when you wander the streets of Boston, I took my family to Boston last July. Uh, my my kids had only been up to Massachusetts once. My wife had only been there once, and we walked around the city uh, doing the touristy stuff because. It's everywhere you walk. There's there's history. It's not it's certainly not at the le- to the level of Europe, um, where you know you're talking hundreds, thousands of years or whatever. But but the but the history. It's a proud history, uh, good and bad. The you see the cobblestones. You see some of the older architecture uh, next to the newer gleaming skyscrapers or whatever. And but but I'm I'm a food guy, so. You walk in the north end of Boston and just take in a deep breath. And besides, <laughs> besides the underlayment of uh, car exhaust and you, you've got the harbor and the sea and the, and the sea smell, but it's the food, you know, it's the, it's the ambiance. It's the, the people smiling and talking to each other and they know each other, or at least the locals do. Um, and the, and the accents, whether it's, you know, they just stepped off, uh, got off the boat 
or they're they're from uh, Massachusetts forever and they say things in crazy ways like ca and uh, pack and things like that because you know ours don't exist there. Your your accent comes out sometimes. It does. It does. <laughs> I mean, I can continue this with, you know, it's wicked fun to actually talk like that, but I'm not going to do that to you. That would be confusing for listeners. Uh, juxtaposed, <laughs> but juxtaposed with that is I got to visit San Francisco and I, I was there for doing an audit for one of our offices. And I, we, I was in the financial area, the Transamerica building, that, that neighborhood. And I, I got out and I just walked around and I walked up all the hills or many of them. And that was back when I was in shape and I had hair. That was a long time ago. And I, you know, I wandered around and just how quickly some of the neighborhoods changed from, uh, you know, proper financial uh, business to Chinatown uh, and bits of Chinatown. And then I would head toward um, the, uh, the waterfront and you know, you see Ghirardelli and you see, um, uh, you know, the bridge in the distance and, and, and JD, please correct me if I mess up on any of this, cause it's been a while, but the, just the, the, the difference of West coast versus East coast, um, and how San Francisco has its own history and you can see some of that, but all of the cultures that have bled into it and really made it its own unique flavor and its own unique sounds and its own unique sights. And it's, and yet there were similarities to San Francisco and Boston that I really appreciated. Maybe it's because it's on the water as well. Uh, and maybe because it's cooler um, in terms of temperature well, as well as culturally <laughs> too. But those similarities, I felt very much at home walking around San Fran and, and really appreciated that and enjoyed that a lot. Cool. Yeah, I mean that that's something that you can kind of um uh, a comfort that that you can feel maybe just based on the fact that it's two cities within America, but but America is so diverse in and of itself that it's impossible to just boil it down to that. Like I grew up in British Columbia and like places like Vancouver I can say feel similar to Portland or or San Francisco, but at the same time each of those cities has something unique to tell. Uh, to the people that live there, and that's different from what visitors would experience as well. You know, I feel like the the cities that I've I've lived in, I've gotten to have a more um, nuanced appreciation for what that city has to offer. You know, there are some cities that have very impressionistic, uh, uh just sort of baseline, you know, Berlin being one of them. I think Tokyo is one of those kind of cities. It's just like, whoa, you know? Uh, but then other cities, it's, it's, a, it's like a drinking, it's like shotgunning a beer versus, versus drinking a, a whiskey and taking your time with it. You know, a city that you live in, you take sips and you notice the fine notes, all the different flavors that are, that are uh, suffusing the drink. Whereas you know, sometimes you just get this really flash hot in the pan, like Gareth in uh, in Wellington, three, four days, like, boom, this just insanely hot searing impression of this city based on, on my short amount of time there. And I think it's really cool to be able to live in a city versus visit a city and get different experiences from that. You know, maybe you fly somewhere in your jet lag and it's like, I feel like shit. And I had a terrible time in Paris or blah, 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 blah. 
But for someone who lives in Paris, it's like, you know, years and years and years of accumulated uh, details that really flesh it out. And I want to get deeper into, into actual writing. And I think a lot of all of you have done in your writing is um, inhabited your cities with characters who have more nuanced perspectives on the cities that they're living in, um, just based on the fact that you are writers and you have the benefit of time to convey exactly what you want to convey with your cities. So Fonda, we'll start with you. I'm curious, why did you decide to choose a city as a setting to begin with? And then building on top of that, how does it play into how you portray things like world building and character and plot? So uh, really for me, the reason why my trilogy is set in um, a city is because of vibes. Like when I started writing the Green Boat Talk, <laughs> I didn't have a plot. I didn't have characters. I just had vibes. I just knew what this story would feel like. And I envisioned it as being of a modern era fantasy that um, evoked uh, this, the like coolest moves in, you know, the martial arts movies that I enjoyed, but also um, a lot of, uh, of gangster fiction and crime drama movies. And, um, you know, what is that genre without the men smoking in bars and the back alley deals and the, uh, you know, assassinations at the docks and like those those are just so much a part of the aesthetic of that genre that i knew right off the bat that that this would be a story set in a city and that the city would play an incredibly important role um in in the narrative uh, and my goal right off the st uh, the start was that the city of john loon had to be a character in its own right. You had to get to know the city in the same way that you get to know the characters because it is, even though the, the trilogy goes off into a bunch of other places and you go to other countries, you go to other cities and um, it becomes much more global, it always comes back to the city of John Loon. And um, in order to make that character, the uber character of, of John Loon, feel real, I needed to make it um, as, uh, as textural as possible. So I focused a lot on um, making it feel lived in and making it feel specific, um, giving names to the districts and the streets, the restaurants, um, the cars that, that you see on the, uh, when you're, you know, walking down the sidewalk uh all the the smells and the sights and all of that had to had to be part of the story and um you talked about having different experiences for different uh people who live in a in a city and i accomplished that um because of a minor character i have a cast of characters that um that you see throughout the trilogy um but they most of them um, are members of the ruling clan of the city. And so they have a certain perspective of it. And early on, I had this minor character who showed up that I initially intended as a framing device. Um, he would come on like a George R. R. Martin style character 
and uh, and get us into the world and then die. You know, and that was kind of yeah. my initial <laughs> in, 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 intent with this character. But as he walked on to the page, I realized, no, this guy is super useful to me as a writer because he has a completely different perspective about life in this city and shows you the seedy underbelly and the like sort of desperate life of a character who does not have wealth and power in the city. And as a result, he could get me into parts of John Loon that you know, the, the main characters don't see as often and, you know, aren't, aren't a part of. Uh, and so, um, having a multi POV cast was, was really useful to, to understand the city and the setting better, um, as was just making it feel lived in. And, and I love talking about world building. It's kind of one of my favorite craft topics. Um, and I, I often talk about how, um, a lot of world building is just having your characters live in the world. Um, and as they're moving through the narrative and advancing the plot, you know, I had characters have a tense um, confrontation in a temple or have a family, you know, uh, conversation at a sporting event. Um, and a lot of, of the care of uh, these characters, um, discussions and strategy happen in their favorite family restaurant. Right. So um, all of those things, I hope, contribute to making the city feel like this not just a backdrop but like an actual character in the trilogy yeah and i like the 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 way that you you frame that it's like the city and the scenes themselves are a framing device for world building plot and character um you know on uh writing excuses the podcast um you had an intensive world building kind of course with them where you describe it as the narrative holy trinity of world building, plot, and character, and how all these things play off of each other. And I think you can use the city itself as a framing device for the world building, depending on where you set your scenes, depending on how your characters interact with those scenes, uh, those scenarios. And then on top of that, what are those characters doing there? And how do they perceive the world? And how do they drive the plot forward based on where they are and what they're doing? And so it's like all these three things come together and allow you to create something more rich and cohesive. And, you know, I think all, all four of you do a great job of, of setting your scenes in, in such ways that your characters can play off of it. There's this nice back and forth interaction between your characters and the world such that they enhance each other. The world feels richer for what the character sees it as. And the characters richer for what the world they inhabit allows them to be. And so I really, really love how you how you frame that just as the narrative holy trinity in these three things working in conjunction. If I can just add one thing about um yep. the the city as a as a setting and as a character, is that oftentimes you can make your city, whether it's you know, you're using a real city or a fictional city, thematically resonant with the story. Because um, you know, it would have been a very different story if I had set this, set the Greenbone saga in, I don't know, a rural mining town. I mean, I, I could have had Magic Jade in a rural mining town, but it would be completely different. And um, one of the reasons why uh, John Loon is such an integral part of the story is that one of the major themes of the trilogy is globalization and modernization and that tension between modernity and tradition um, among these characters and, and the culture that, that they, uh, they, 
they're, they're, they are part of that legacy um, of these cultural traditions. And yet they are also having to deal with uh, foreign influences that are coming into their city. And cities are so often, you know, the, the focal point of, of influences from outside as well. So those, that the thematic resonance of um, modernization and like moving into, you know, in, in, into being part of the world and opening up and trade, all of those things um, are also part of the city and make that like a resonance setting. Mm -hmm. And JD, in, in your case with Monkey Around, uh, I'm curious how you uh, came to decide, I want to set this story in San Francisco, but on the notion of thematic resonance, I think that's really cool. Your version of San Francisco resonates the story that you're that you're putting on the page in the sense that we brought up shape-shifting earlier i did in, in in the sense of berlin your version of san francisco involves shape-shifting magical creatures and characters in a version of san francisco that is riding out the the monumental change and fallout from the uh 2008 stock market crash and so I think it's really cool that you have this thematic resonance between your characters and, and, and your version of San Francisco. So how did you decide to set it uh, in that city? And what was, your, what was your process like in terms of fleshing out the characters and, and the world building and all that? Um, well, I was reading a lot of urban fantasy at the time, um, a lot of uh, woman-centered paranormal detective stories. And, um, and I just decided I wanted to write one. And as soon as I decided I wanted to write one, it was really obvious I wanted to set it in San Francisco. Um, one of the things, and, and I don't get me wrong, I love urban fantasy and I love all of these these um, series that I was reading. One of the things that bothered me about it was that, you know, the the, the genre is very, very white and, um, and it's very, very focused on European mythology, you know, particularly vampires, werewolves, and fae. And, um, and there's so much, so much more mythology out there that, that, that could be tapped for urban fantasy. Um, so I just decided to set it in my San Francisco. I mean, the, the, the San Francisco, the Bay Area that you see depicted in Monkey Around is where I live. Um, it, the layers of, uh, of culture and subculture that you see in there are my layers, the layers that I live in and that my friends live in and that I function in. And I just, I wanted for once in my life to actually see my world represented in, in, in literature. It's pretty much that, that simple. Um, but, um, it, you know, and, and your, your theme today is characters as cities. I decided to make the Bay area an actual character, not, not just like a character, but an actual character. The, um, the Bay area has a, a genius loci, um, the spirit of the place that actually at one point in the story rises up and, more or less communicates with the main character. And uh, it's, it, it was something like um, like what Fonda said earlier about um, how cities tell, tell themselves what they are. Um, I actually decided to have my, like, you know, uh, and what I was talking about earlier with Berlin renaming its streets, you know, Berlin street renaming is one of Berlin's particular ways of telling itself what it wants to be. Um, and uh, for me in, um, in San Francisco, um, it's collective action. And, um, and, the, and so I wanted to have the city rise up and choose a leader of collective action to communicate with and say, this is who I wanna be. 
make it happen, you know, and it literally happens in the book. This, the, 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 the region rises up as a spirit and says, this is what I want you to make me. And, um, and, and, and it was very important to me that this person be not just a, um, a leader of collective action, but a, a woman of color, um, an Asian American woman who is working in, um, in social justice communities, particularly in her own Asian American social justice community, because that is my experience of the Bay Area. It's my experience in San Francisco. And um, and I think I've lost track of your question. I just went off on my own hobby horse. No, you, you are on a perfect track okay. there. It's, it's, uh, you, you've touched on a lot of it is sort of how you're how you're balancing world building with character and, and yeah, um, um, the reasons why you set San Francisco said it in San Francisco, but shapeshifters. I love it. The, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, you brought yeah. up the shapeshifters. I wanted to say something to that. Um, one of the things about, um, and, and, and this, this appears throughout the book. Um, I, I, I forefront particularly the Asian American and the Latinx communities in San Francisco in the book. Um, and one of the things about these two communities, about all communities of color, all immigrant communities, especially, but all communities of color, um, in the United States is that there is a lot of code switching that um, has to happen. And for those of you who don't know what code switching means, it literally is a linguistic term that means switching from one language to another. But in the United States, it's been taken as more of a metaphorical term for switching from one, one language, one dialect, one um, subcultural um, idiom to another um, when you're speaking to two different um, sub-dialects of English. And, um, and so, Immigrant communities in the United States and in San Francisco especially have to code switch constantly when they're within their community, they speak or, and behave one way when they're outside of their community, they speak and behave another way. And um, with Asian American activism, because you're not just in your own community, your own ethnic community, you're in a broader pan ethnic community where a lot of people from a lot of different cultural origins have come together, you know, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Filipino, um, South Asian, et cetera, et cetera. And um, they all have different uses. They all have different languages. So um, when even when you're within your, your own community, you have to code switch, do a lot of code switching. So, um, so I forefronted shapeshifters in this story because these are people who in their daily lives are constantly shape-shifting even in you know in their human lives are constantly shape-shifting and the two main asian american characters are unlimited shape-shifters they don't they're not just stuck re restricted to one form they could take on any form because within their own communities they have to codes do a lot of different types of code switching as well um so that was um, that was something that you know once I once I settled on that I um, I gave the entire book the theme of transformation um, uh, because I wanted to uh, I basically just you kind of lay that on top of the book and the metaphors just write themselves basically it's uh, it's not it's not super hard to um, to create thematic resonance resonance when you lay the right metaphor over the top of, of your story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's fascinating. I mean, for me, now that I live in Ecuador, that code switch, that, that code switching thing you brought up, I think it, it goes beyond just America in terms of its, its modern connotations, because here I, I experience so many different sides of Ecuador and even within Spanish, it's like my, my in-laws, they're from rural 
Ecuador. And when we go back, the the way that they speak kind of shifts a little bit and the way that they pronounce certain things, you know, we call it, you know, in North America, it's like, oh, you're from the boonies or you're like a redneck or something like that. But it's like redneck Ecuadorians and how they speak Spanish in a different way that people in the city in Quito or Guayaquil would say, oh, you're a little more like uneducated. You know what I mean? Just by listening to how they to how they speak. And so it's really fascinating, like these sub communities within larger communities and how language, even though it's, you know, a blanket term can be so, uh, so multi-layered and, and so distinct depending on where you are and who you're speaking with, you know, whether it's in English or whether it's in Spanish and all these different communities just, uh, smashing together. And Gareth, in, in your case, uh, I want to toss the same question to you about how you chose to set your books in a city, but you also have, uh, fantastical, uh, races like ghouls and, and, uh, a disease that sweeps through the city called, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but the stone men who are, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so you, you have this, uh, this dynamic of interaction between people based on, uh, what form they take, whether if you have stone flesh or you're a ghoul or you're a human or whatever strata of, uh, of, um, economic status, et cetera. So if you want to jump off on that. I mean, I didn't sort of, you know, consciously set out going, oh, well, put this in a city. When I started the book, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing or where, where I was running. So I sort of threw out lots lots of ideas and then sort of took a step back and said, okay, here's how these can all put together. Which I think is actually a fairly good way to, like, think about writing an in a fictional city. Because with very, very few examples, no one sort of sits down and sort of, creates a city from scratch. There are things that decrease that evolve over time. And but you, when you when you experience them, you sort of like you know, you, you come to, you, you you sort of get a cross section of the city. You see like you know, see present and like bits of, bits of different pasts. Like you know, like you know, this building is from like you know, this particular era. This particular group arrived in the city like you know, hundred years ago. These are the newcomers and so forth. So you get a sort of different slice of the city each time. Um, so basically, so when it comes to writing, writing sort of throwing ideas out there and then finding sort of the most parsimonious way to put them together, fitted with city building, as opposed yeah. to from scratch and going right. Here's the timeline of the city from day one. And how did that how did that work for you in terms of uh, giving you a platform through which you could flesh out the characters and the plot and and uh, world building and stuff like that. Well, a lot of the time, I, I, I would like you know, write something. Go, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder where that goes. I create a new character to basically follow that thread. So like, the book starts off with like you know three thieves, and then I would like you know, oh, I want to like you know, go get into the politics a bit more. There's this character created um, who's a detective. I like you know, have a point of view character from him, a point of view chapter from him. He can go off and, like you know, talk to people at a, at a higher socioeconomic class and. Learn about how the, like, the city's like upper class functions, and then oh, mm-hmm. uh, the university level, like, you know, the character's an academic, and they can go off and like you know, see that sort of stuff. It was very much sort of following interesting threads, and since then you can sort of look back and see again a different perspective of the of the city that you've traversed. Yeah, it just creates a dynamic perception of what the city yeah. is like. You see it from the upper echelons all the way down to the bottom and the dregs, and um, I, I love that your process was so spontaneous. It's like after reading your books, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to apply that 
that knowledge to, oh yeah, like this character came into the story and I can just see your thought process is like, soon after that, there was a POV chapter from their perspective. And I'm like, cool, because I really wanted to learn like what the story was like from their perspective. And and that's exactly the mindset that you yeah, had. Yeah, I mean, again, like, the whole point of a city is that there's so much there all clashing each other, uh, 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 like overlapping, clashing. It's fun to like you know, go exploring and find interesting nooks and crannies. Yeah, I agree completely. And Peter, at what point did you decide uh, you wanted to set your stories in a city? And I know a lot of your foundation came from uh, tabletop, uh, tabletop RPG that you created. So just jump off on that and uh, and tell us how you did it. Well, using New York City as uh, Empire City, um, it's a cheat and a conceit, right? Uh, New Yorkers think that they're the center of the universe, so it's very easy to gravitate towards writing a a story with them, with that as the center of the universe. My Guardian of Empire City series is based on a series of tabletop RPGs that I've been running with my gaming group, Pool 5. I've known since uh, 1989. Uh, fabulous people, very creative. And it's a collaborative effort because I'll, I came up with a concept of, hey, let's have a group of people who are s- specialists that can solve crimes strange and unusual by any means necessary. And we'll throw in urban fantasy and we'll throw in science fiction and we'll throw in uh, fantasy and a lot of bad jokes and we'll mesh that all together into what eventually became completed games that I then took those games and said, hey, let's novelize those. So I did. And, uh, you know, the characters, most of the characters in the story are actually characters or mirror images of the characters that some of my players played, with the exception of the lead character who I came up with myself. And... So, you know, I wanted to have a setting that was both familiar and unfamiliar. It's a near future New York, uh, which it's partly a conceit because by using New York City, I don't have to create a city. It's already there. What I can do is take the foundation of what's there and then change it and go, what if? What if this happened? What if this neighborhood's changed? Why did this neighborhood change? Who lives in this neighborhood? Ooh, maybe it's stayed the same over the years, but what are the subtle influences? And you get to play with that. And so the sandbox becomes very broad and very uh, approachable. So uh, I, again, using New York City, I focused on a, in in the first book, uh, I focused on Manhattan for the main for the main thrust of the story, but the lead character is from an area called Brighton Beach because I wanted to bring in some, some, an aspect of the character that he's, he's half Jewish. And I don't see in reading a lot of urban fantasy, I don't see Judaism really show up much in these stories and, and that's okay. It's just, just hasn't been there, but I wanted to bring my own slant to it. I'm, I'm Jewish family. Uh, my, in fact, my son a year ago today was bar mitzvah. I got another one coming up in November, and I wanted to add that bit of cultural difference and distinction to my stories. Uh, in addition to you know, like what JD said, I mean, the 
uh, a preponderance of the stories that I read as well, it's very uh, Euro mythology focused. It's it's mostly white, and to be fair, my uh, lead characters are white, but have their distinctions as well. Just try to create a, a a bigger world and remind people that there is a greater and bigger world out there to perhaps shed some light on some bits of culture that you don't normally read about or don't normally see. And that becomes even more apparent in the sequel pieces of eight. Um, New York is wonderful because it's so big and so sprawling that you, you, you go, I, I can, go to familiar areas and then change them and use street names to lend the familiarity to it, to give it a sense of place and history, but then change it and say, oh, well, you know, uh, what used to be here, old brownstones and up and comers and arts, uh, art decor and whatever is now run down and, and uh, economically depressed, whereas I can flip that and take economically depressed areas and change them and do whatever I want with it to show a future that is familiar and yet different. Yeah, I like that. And at the same time, you know, since you are setting this in a, in a city that exists, JD, I'll get your opinion on this afterwards. Were there any pitfalls um, that you that you were aware of or, or tried to avoid because you are representing your version of the city? And, and as opposed to um, presenting what could be called like a generalization of New York City or in JD's case, a generalization of, of San Francisco. Well, the challenge is exactly that, trying not to paint too pale a picture. Um, and just, you know, it, it, if I'm going to gloss over something, I got I to gotta give it enough love uh, to to not insult it, um, to take the, the remnants of whatever a neighborhood used to be, say, whether it's 21st century or, or 22nd century, 23rd, whatever, and, 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 and give it its due, but not to the extent that it doesn't sound like I know what I'm writing about, right? The, the, lead detect, uh, the lead character is a homicide detective that allows, by having that badge, it allows him to get into relatively anywhere. So highbrow neighborhoods, lowbrow neighborhoods, and everything in between. Um, I wanted not to insult the character of New Yorkers and New York, for sure. I wanted, when you read my stories, I want you to feel like you're in New York. And you can see it and you can smell it and you can hear it and you can taste it um, and give it, give it, like I said earlier, give it its fair due. Um, some of the challenges are, you know, it, that falls, some of it just falls under research, making sure I did my own homework of reading about a particular neighborhood or reading about a particular industry or something and having enough familiarity with it to be able to write about it. So it sounds authentic. I, I, you, in our critique sessions, I talk about authenticity, um, where you know you you want to be able to write and thus read something that is plausible and real 
uh, and has complexity and depth to it. And, and again, not, not, uh, uh, not to insult anyone or anything uh, as best as I can. Yeah. And JD, in your case with San Francisco, you touched on this a little bit before about evoking your San Francisco experience, like how you've lived it. And much like Peter's detective, your, your main character is a shapeshifter and can thus access so many different places within San Francisco that, that the majority of people would never be able to get to. So for you, how did you straddle that line between evoking your version of San Francisco and, and, and your experiences, but at the same time, not painting too broad a brush? Um, I, I, I think, I think that wasn't my difficulty. Um, as, as long as I was able to, to focus on, uh, I mean, I, I, I was able to primarily focus on, um, my own experience of the city and that made it particular enough. Um, it was, but it is very, very difficult to build an urban fantasy world with hidden magic as opposed to like a um, Patricia Briggs world um, where magic is open and everybody knows about it, um, you know, or Lona Andrews or what have you. Um, it's very hard to build a, um, an urban fantasy world with hidden magic without a criminal underground that um, that the magical creatures that the supernatural is heavily involved in because there's just it's just completely illogical that there wouldn't be a human underground a human criminal underground that is uh, interwoven with the um with the magical creatures otherwise you know keeping it secret wouldn't work how, yeah. how would you <laughs> get your stuff how would you live how would you function it's just not possible so um i i knew i wanted to have the criminal underground organized crime um gangs in the story from the jump partly because of that simple logic problem logistical problem but also because it is one of the pitfalls of immigrant communities and but that but but the moment you recognize that you bring that into your story you're walking a very fine line between stereotype and reality and um and i and that was where a lot of my revision was focused was like you know just tweak things constantly away from stereotypes constantly away from portraying people as simple thugs portraying people as simple um uh you know criminals and just really digging into you know why do these people join gangs why do these people uh, become part of organized crime um what is the appeal of that not just for supernatural creatures, but also for humans. Um, and, uh, and I, and I hope I got it right, but, um, that was a, that was a really difficult one. No, I can imagine. And, you know, Gareth and Fonda, you both have set your stories in, um, in fictional, completely fictional, uh, worlds. Fonda, I think I've heard you, you touch on this, uh, before. I can't remember if we spoke about it back in November, but how, um, how you created this uh, this world and John Loon and and everything surrounding it, with the intention of it not being so easily definable as this Asian culture or that Asian culture, et cetera, et cetera. So for you, when creating a fiction, when creating this fictional world, what kind of flexibility did that offer you in terms of giving the the setting its own unique character, but also the the citizens that are occupying it, and at the same time, um, freeing you up from some of the 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 pitfalls of of focusing too intently on one specific culture as your basis. 
Well, the double-edged sword of creating your city to be entirely fictional is um, on the plus side, you are not beholden to facts and real life and real people. Um, on the downside, now you have to make all that stuff up. So you've got um, more work on one hand and less ha less work on the other. And so, you know, it's kind of a wash. But, um, you know, I very much wanted this city to be a product of, uh, you know, its its culture, its origin and, and its geography. Right. So um, it is it's set. It's the capital city of an island nation, and that very much defines its character. It has this long history of having been relatively isolated, and uh, now just sort of in the modern era, having to to um, deal with a great deal of growth and and modernization and um, and international trade. Uh, it is also very much defined by the magic resource that that I have in this world, which is the magic jade. And that was one reason why I actually tossed around the idea of setting the story in an existing um, AU version of a city in our world. Like I could have tried to set this story in an alternate Tokyo or, you know, alternate San Francisco and um, had magic jade in that world. But there would have been so many limitations because it, you know, the city would have developed completely differently if there was a magic resource. Um, and then I was starting to bend like what would, you know, bend reality in a way that, um, I ended up deciding, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to start from the studs and, and bare bones, um, of what's the, what do I know about this place geographically and kind of the, the history of it and the cultural influence and, um, the, the type of people who live there. And build up from there, and and um, exactly as you said, uh, I needed to code it as East Asian without um, making it recognizable as any one place in our real world, and so that led to specific world building choices. Um, so that you know, when I describe a meal that you have when you go to a night market um, and you buy something from a food vendor there, uh, you need to be like, wow, this is an Asian night market and this is the sort of food that I would get if I was there. But it's not distinguishable as, you know, it's not, it's not sushi. Uh, you know, it's not ramen. Mm -hmm. It's not dim sum. It's not any one of those any one of those sp culturally specific foods. Um, but it, it it's still cues you um into the setting into the cultural inspirations yeah i like that it's like no they're dumplings it's not dim sum don't worry like these are these are steamed buns or or this is like a sushi roll or something like that but it's it's very um it's very convincing what you've created just because of the the thought that you've put behind it you know all of you have put so much thought and Gareth, I want to get your take on this as well, just from the perspective of, of a, a secondary world, but regardless of whether you're writing an our world or a secondary world, you have to put in the thought and intention of how you want this to be portrayed because otherwise you're going to contradict yourself and the reader is going to get confused or there's going to be in the case of a secondary world, there's going to be too many parallels between this world and ours that it doesn't feel it feels washed down, you know, it feels like it feels watered down in terms of um, its believability as its own unique thing. And Gareth, what was your approach when you were creating Guerdon? I think I pronounced that right. Yeah, well, it's a good word, um, but it sounds like London, which is what we liked about it. 
No, I mean, <laughs> the city started out as basically, like, the, the geography of it is pretty based on Cork, where I live. Then it's like the history, like the sort of historical feel of London with like, you know, many, many, many layers of events and import, uh, sort of waxy wane importance. And then the sort of the, the architecture and sort of verticality of Edinburgh, which are also I know fairly well. But, but what I really wanted when Reading was basically the sort of the complexity of the city in that I wanted, I was really sorry about like, you know, active, active gods, like, you know, these supernatural powers that like, you know, are very much impacting on uh, human life. And what then was this uh, a relatively realistic city that could be deformed by the supernatural. And cities are great for that because cities um, have so many sort of needs, like, you know, cities have to be fed, like, there have to be sewers, there have to be government, there have to be organisations. Um, they're, they're, like, they're, they're ecosystems, and you sort of take this, like, you know, urban ecosystem and you slam in this, like, you know, god of war or, like, demonic black iron gods and see how, how it changes and how it sort of reflows. So, it was like, we're talking about um, positive plots, like, you know, the sort of the traffic flowing around all the construction. Similarly, you take this, like, you know, divine influence. How does the city move around that? Yeah, and, and in your case, the city itself is literally in, inhabited by gods they've they've yeah. had they've had a hand in uh manipulating the layout you know you're driving yeah. around Potsdamer Platz and the traffic is flowing based on whatever whatever is happening in that particular day but but in your case instead of the the fallout of war it's the the fallout of supernatural gods yeah yeah i mean that was just like you know me having great fun with like you know sort of literalizing metaphors and like you know Instead of like the city being at war, you have like the god of war showing up and blowing things up, and it makes for more fun too. Mm-hmm. Action packed, God comes and just throws shit off balance. <laughs> and uh, I want to want to sort of wind this down and and ask you. You know, we've been talking a lot about cities and world building and how that intersects with characters and plot and things like that. But if you could boil down some practical advice for listeners viewers who are actively writing themselves uh or thinking about writing stories that are set in cities uh so peter we'll start with you if you have some advice for for viewers and listeners write what you know research what you don't know draw upon your creativity and don't be afraid just don't be afraid just write because if you don't write you've got nothing and it's you you have a gift express it read everything read what you can if you want to write urban fantasy read romance too read everything because you're the influences around you especially in today's today's world where there are thousands of brilliant authors out there traditionally published self-published that have stories that you can learn from but be yourself be true to yourself and just write on. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's a good point. Just like, if you just let it come out of you and you write and you let it happen naturally, revision is where you can fix your errors because errors are guaranteed as a writer, but that's what revision is for. JD brought it up earlier. She went back and revised her book in order to make her representation of San Francisco and the gang 
uh, and criminal un- uh, element of that city as believable as possible, but also a fair representation. So it's like, you can go back and fix whatever shit you mess up along the way, but just have fun with it and just let it spill out naturally, you know? Fonda, do you have some some advice for for uh, aspiring writers or uh, people who are working on stuff? Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, Peter put it really well, and I'll just bounce off of it and say that, you know, write um, the story that you're meant to write. You know, don't write like what you think um, the, either the you should be writing or the market is telling you to write. Like if you, if you think about what everyone on this panel has been saying, they've, you know, all brought something of their own experience, even if they're working in a very well, working in a, in an established genre, like urban fantasy with a city that millions of people live in and, and multiple more millions of people already know, like San Francisco, for example, um, you know, you're, you're bringing something of yourself to that story and like what are you doing that is sort of really personal and important to you um that makes you the right person to write this story and and to bring your own you know heart into it because for every single writer who's out there now currently working on a manuscript you're going to have to live with this story for a long time like not just the writing process but then the publishing process and the marketing and publicity process and you've got to live with the story for one to three years right and and especially and more if you're writing speculative fiction you've got a series planned so um just i i feel like you're if you're writing a city as well um uh, you know you your city we talked about the city being a character I think every writer loves their characters, you know, even the ones that are uh, the very questionable or, or despicable characters. Like I, I love all those characters because I've created them. And I think you have to also have to love um, the world. And, and if you are working in a, an urban setting, you have to kind of have, um, have that sort of deep affection for, for the world that you're working in. Yeah. And you got to love the process too. Cause if you're if you're in love with the characters in the world that you're creating, it's going to give you more motivation to just push through what is not an easy thing, which is writing a book. And you know, I Fonda, you and I talked about this before, but it's like saying goodbye to John Loon and and the characters of the Greenbone Saga and that world and everything. When you finish this this trilogy, you there's a part of you that actively misses them and, and, and has deep affection for them. And I think whatever you create, if you have deep affection for it and you miss it, that can make you think at the end of the day, shit, that was really worth it. Like I loved doing that and building that and putting it out into the world. And now other people have the opportunity to love it and uh, devour it and everything like that. Um, Gareth, what about you? If you have some practical advice for, for the listeners and viewers out there. Practical advice. Um, there's the fantastic uh, William Gibson quote, like the street finds no uses for things. Um, because like you, you've like, so many different sort of, um, groups in a city, any like, you know, plot element to introduce is going to be like, sort of picked up and used by different people or like, you know, they're going to find their own ways of interacting with it. So like, if you sort of introduce things, see, see, see what, like, what, what other levels and parts of the city that could affect. So if you introduce like, you know, a new like fictional concept, like, you know, see, see what that goes in the city. Let's sort of like, you know, 
go walking on the streets and turn some corners and see how it's used there. Yeah. And as much like our individual experiences, subjective experiences with the city, what you implement into your world will be used in different ways based on the subjective experience of of the characters that inhabit it, which is why, you know, Fonda was mentioning about having multiple POVs. Gareth, you as well. Uh, I think it's really important that you um, take the technologies or magic or what have you that you implement into your world and make it uh make it as integrated as possible but then give yourself the opportunities to make it as believable as possible for readers who will who will then pick up your book because otherwise it's like oh i have this cool thing and it's just fucking throwaway garbage because nobody talks about it nobody uses it nobody shows that it's a a real living aspect of this world and uh, JD, we'll, we'll close out with you if you have some advice for uh, re- listeners and viewers. Location scouting. Uh, I've been I've been making TikTok videos actually about um, the location scouting I'm doing for uh, the second Maya McQueen novel, the second Monkey novel, um, and uh, I, I highly recommend it if you're writing about a city that that you know or uh, that you live in. Um, that you don't just rely on your past experiences, but that you you go to the the locations of the scenes, and um, and if you're writing about a secondary world city that that you're making up out of whole cloth, go to places that are um, that have similar functions to the the locations that you're trying to build, so that you can get a five sense, not just a five sense, you know, a nine sense. Um, sense impression of what the place is like, what it looks like, smells like, tastes like, feels like, um, and sounds like. And, um, and so, and, and so that you're not relying what, when, when you do an actual location scout, um, your all of your senses and all your attention is going to be turned on the location, especially anyway. Whereas when you rely on your memory, you're only going to rely on the things that you focused on when you were there last. Um, and unfortunately, we go through, you know, cities are are such a full sensory experience um, and, and such such so much sensory overwhelm that um, we shut the senses off as we go through our, our everyday lives. And so we shut so much of the city out. Um, so you have to actually go through a process of, of opening those back up to let the things in that you need to shut out to get through your day. Um, and you need those things so as not to have that so, sort of herald in the purple crayon uh, impression where you only draw in the things that you need in that moment and the rest of the world is blank. Um, so yeah, five senses, do your location scouting, um, even if you're building a completely made up city. And go into it with intentionality. Like you said, it's like you're purposefully opening up your your senses in order to um, get a broader feeling of what is going on around you. But if you go into it thinking like, oh, I'm only going to include smells and taste, and then therefore you're just focusing on food. It's like, okay, that's cool. But at the same time, you know, what's going on around? Who's talking? What's the setting like? What's the the auditory? vibe of this place it's like you know peter and i in our in our writing critique group we talk a lot about this in terms of sensory information and description and how that 
comes through and creates a sense of immersion for the reader. And I think that is so important. It's like, you got to have balance. You can't just, you know, I've read books where so, so much of the sensory description is just sight or uh, sound or smell. But then what the hell is your character tasting? Or, you know, in the sense of a city like Boston, where you're on the on the seaside, you taste the salt on your mouth, you taste the car exhaust because it it's just this full body interaction, but you can't leave that stuff out or it just kind of falls a little bit flat or feels um, feels uh, less believable than it than it really could. Um, to close out, I would like all of you to share some recommendations. It could be a book, movie, what have you that represents a city in in a pure and powerful way. So we'll start with uh, Fonda. Wow, to put me on the spot. Uh, let's see, the ones that <laughs> jump to mind for me, two of them jump to mind for me immediately when we talk about cities. Um, one is uh, Lies of Loch Lamora by Scott Lynch. The city of Camorre there is so, is a fictional city, a fantasy world, that's, but it's so richly realized and sort of the dark underbelly and the and the criminal elements of that city and the the districts have the their characters to them and that sort of division between the rich and the powerful and and the very desperate and poor and um all the sketchy things that happen so that that city stands out to me um and then when we're talking about real cities um I think uh Harry Dresden's uh you know Chicago jumps to mind for me know as a you know that I, I will always associate dresden with chicago and that's a uh, jim butcher's dresden files series fantastic i love those books so much cool and uh peter what about you you got some uh recommendations um for real city uh michael Connolly's harry bosch uh it's los angeles it uh it, it he lives and breathes it even though he's from florida um he, the way Bosch moves about that city and the, the, the way that it's described and the very, in parts, grimy, dirty, because uh, he's a homicide detective, mm. uh, seeing the underbelly of uh, the neighborhoods and whatnot, it just really, really stands out and helped and does help inform some of what I've been writing about. Uh, from a fantasy standpoint, there's a couple of them. Uh, I'm actually about to be finished the fourth book in Douglas Lumsden's Alexander Sutherland PI series. It's urban fantasy. It takes place in a fictional um, California, if you will. It's heavily influenced with uh, South American and Native American mythology. Uh, excellent uh, description of his city that seems to be an amalgamation of San Francisco and perhaps parts of, uh, Southern California as well. So you really can taste and feel and see the city and then way out fantasy, um, T.A. Bruno's, um, the song of Camarias series, it's science fiction. And, uh, Tom, Tom's first of all, just a really great guy, super nice guy. And his, his other world where humans left earth and they've transplanted to this other planet is so full of life and color and, 
and and majesty and how he describes it is is really visceral and visual and 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 cinematic he i think he does a really nice job with that cool thank you and jd what about you some recommendations um so two for for actual cities um one is i i i was uh actually thinking about when peter was talking about new york city i was thinking about like none of us are really talking about new york city like um even peter didn't like really get into like rhapsodizing about new york city the way that we did about other cities and it's because it is so overexposed as a city um and so i want to recommend nk jemison's the city we became which is a, a very unusual urban fantasy about new york city and the five boroughs where the five boroughs literally talk about city as a character the um in this in this you know world um actual cities become literally embodied in a person. And New York City, because it's five boroughs, becomes embodied in five people, plus another one. And um, and that's fantastic. And then um, and then P. Jelly Clark's um, The Black God's Drums, it's a novella, so it doesn't have a lot of space for world building, but it does a really great job with New Orleans in a very, very small space. Um, and then, of course, for, um, for secondary world cities, I, you know, Fondalee's Jade, uh, or Greenbone Saga, Jade City and, and all that <laughs> is just, is the best right now. It is just the best. I cannot stop talking about this series. Seconded, absolutely. Yes, yes, you have absolutely. to read it. You Seconded. have to read it, yeah. Yep, I'm, I'm, I'm on, I haven't started book three yet, but uh, poor Adrian uh, had to put up with me because he's like, Oh yeah, you're you're going to be on this uh, podcast, and it'll be Gareth and JD and Fonda Lee. And I stopped for a second, and said, "Wait a minute, <laughs> I've I've read those books. Oh, this is fantastic." No, JD is absolutely right. It's like oh, it's fantastic, shit. fantastic, fantastic. Yep. Oh, guys, <laughs> my ears are burning. <laughs> I'm blushing. <laughs> and uh, Gareth, what about some recommendations from you? Um, it's super, super on theme, but uh, Chernobyl, the city and the city. Uh, yeah, again, talking about like, excellent you know, book. Uh, perceptions of cities, um, and Talo Calvino's Invisible Cities again, which seems like you sort of catch ideas of city in like literally one page. And I, I probably can't recommend a book I haven't read yet, but I'm going to make another attempt. I think my third attempt now on um, Alan Moore's Jerusalem, but Northampton which is apparently fantastic, but very, very dense. I've not been the right headspace. It's a long, long book, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, uh, sure. you, you took one of mine, Gareth, with uh, Italo Calvino's uh, Invisible Cities. Fantastic. If anyone is, is uh, writing and wants to understand how you can capture a city in a page, just go read that book. It's, it's dozens of, of little vignettes about uh, a fictional Marco Polo um, telling uh, Kublai Khan of his travels to different places. And Italo Calvino just spins this beautiful, fantastical web of all these different uh, cities and, and is amazing. And it's also kind of like a, uh, a play on the whole Marco Polo travelogue uh, genre. So it's really fantastic. Uh, one for me that that's just so... Uh, burned into my brain is jeff vandermeer's ambergris trilogy 
And uh, the City of Ambergris. So there's three books. There's uh, the City of Saints and Madmen, uh, Finch, and Shriek. Shriek. Yeah. And all three of them just create this beautiful, um, this beautiful tapestry of what this mushroom-infested city is like. And Peter knows me well. It's a mushroom. It's just a mushroom smorgasbord. It's beautiful. <laughs> and that uh, is so you, man. That uh, is so you. For, uh, uh, a- Adrian is writing his own novel and it's first of all it's brilliant from what I've read so far you. and it infuses talk about somebody who is able to and he didn't pay me well at least the check hasn't cleared yet <laughs> um he talk about somebody who can uh portray all of the senses and really get you invested in the characters and the point of view Adrian Adrian has done a phenomenal job so far thank you man thank you and there's tons of mushrooms it's a, it's a mushroom. There are. <laughs> yeah. It's a, I'm, I'm just delighted a that there's another mushroom aficionado because I'm the only one in my family <laughs> who likes mushrooms. Really? And it's, oh. yeah. Fort Salem? No, no, I've never heard of that. Or, or Star Trek Discovery. Okay. Uh, apparently, a lot of people are getting into mycelium these days, mushrooms. Yeah. Um, yep. But Star Trek Discovery has a mushroom drive. Uh, spaceship driven by mushrooms. And, I heard about um, that. It's Motherland like a mycelium warp drive. Mushroom magic. Oh hell yes! Yeah, mushroom oh, magic. Ooh. Very powerful mushroom magic. So ooh. check those. Damn, I'm writing my yeah. book at the right time. There's like oh, all okay. kinds of mushroom and, love out there. And and um, <laughs> Mexican Gothic is another good book for uh, yeah. if you if you want to have high uh, mycological <laughs> themes. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just as soon as we close out, things get really psychedelic. So, <laughs> Cool. Well, uh, Fonda, Gareth, Peter, JD, thank you all so much for joining me and exploring the fascinating world of cities. Uh, if you could please share with viewers and listeners where they can find you on social media, where they can find your work. Uh, Gareth, we'll start with you. Uh, I'm garethanrahan.com or just mythilder on Twitter. Is um, where you'll find me. Cool. And where can people find your work? Uh, in bookstores or game shops. Um, the Background Legacy is out through Orbit Books. Um, Multi role place of these days is Urban Press. Awesome. And Fonda, what about you? You can find my books pretty much wherever books are normally sold. And you can find me online. My website is fondalee.com. I'm on Instagram at fonda.lee and Twitter at fondajlee. Perfect. And JD? Um, I, um, my website is clairelight.com. Um, that's C-L-A-I-R-E-L-I-G-H-T dot org. Sorry, dot O-R-G. Um, and I am at S-E-E-L-I-G-H-T on Twitter. C-Light. Fantastic. And you can find Monkey Around everywhere there are books. I assume everyone, everyone's books are available everywhere. And, uh, <laughs> and Peter, my friend, where can people find you? Um, they can find me sitting right here most days. Uh, but uh, Twitter at Althazir, A-L-T-H-A-Z-Y-R. Uh, my website is peterhartog.com, H-A-R-T-O-G. I have product placement. Uh, anyway, uh, and I can be found on Amazon. Uh, just look my name up and you might find me, hopefully. Fantastic. Well, thank you all for being here. Had a great time. 
been looking forward to this discussion topic for months and months and months. So I appreciate you joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Adrian. Adrian. This was awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed our panel on cities as characters. Thank you again to our guests this episode, Fonda, Gareth, JD, and Peter. As well, if you want to hear more from Fonda specifically, check out my one-on-one interview with her from back in December 2021. That is available on the podcast feed or in full video on the FanFiatic YouTube channel. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us on your platform of choice, and share us with your friends. It helps a lot. We greatly appreciate it. You can also follow SFF Addicts on Twitter or Instagram at SFF Addicts Pod for updates and more. And you can follow me, Adrian M. Gibson, on Twitter or Instagram at Adrian M. Gibson. SFF Addicts is part of FanFiAddict.com, so make sure to check us out there for the latest in book reviews, essays, and all things sci-fi and fantasy, as well as the full episode archive for the podcast. And for all your literature needs, head over to thebrokenbinding.co.uk. All music comes courtesy of the talented Astronauts. Check them out on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash S-T-R-O-N-O-Z. All links for the episode are also available in the show notes. Now, keep reading, keep imagining, and we'll see you next time on SFF Addicts. <laughs>